This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Madison Connaughton, editor of the Saturday paper, joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Dr Brendan Wintle, a professor of conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne and director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, came in to discuss the status of Australia's threatened species after the extreme bushfires we've experienced this summer, as well as what ecologists are doing to assess the impacts on biodiversity and wildlife on the ground. We also explore what needs to be done next. Then, finally, internationally renowned art conservators Will Shank and Antonio Rava joined me in the studio to discuss their restoration of many Keith Herring murals across the world, including our very own Collingwood Keith Herring mural. We also discuss the painstaking and sometimes controversial processes that go into the restoration of major works of art, murals and street art. I'm pleased now to have with me in the studio, returning to the chair, Madison Connaughton, who is editor of the Saturday paper and has joined me today to talk about federal politics. Hi there. Hey, it's great to be back. Lovely to have you back. And um, also really great to talk about federal politics, given that um, we had some pretty major events happening over summer, which um, I've discussed on this show (laughs) at different lengths. We had a very long um, chat last week about bushfires and bushfire behaviour and also resources around planes, etc. And that has certainly kind of reset or changed the debate somewhat and put an increased focus on climate change and energy policy, which of course has been a really big sticking point for all parties in Parliament for a number of years now. Uh, We are seeing this kind of issue continue to grow and build and become more important to many Australians. Um, Where are we at now uh, in terms of climate change policy? Uh, Because we are seeing some people putting pressure onto the government, not just Labor. Actually, Labor's probably not doing a particularly good job at putting pressure on the government on climate change. Um, And there's been a discussion around these breakaway groups, the kind of coal, Friends of Coal, which I think is even a parliamentary group in, um, there's a a Friends of Coal parliamentary group, which is disturbing. Um, But yeah, where are we at now in in this debate, which seems to have rolled so many leaders and continues to be a big, um, you know, sticking point? Yeah, the I guess coming back from the summer break um, and the devastating bushfires, you saw a lot of corners of politics feeling that they were energised to try and do something about climate change. They saw something of a window. Mm. Um, And I think that you see that within the government, within sort of the moderate faction of the Liberal Party, um, but probably most effectively from... Zali Stegel, the independent for Warringah, um, who has gone on this media blitz about a um, private member's bill that she wants to put up, which is, I believe it's called the Climate Act, or, or it's it hasn't been released in draft form yet, so the, the name isn't set in stone, but... Um, Basically, it would be based on this uh, legislation that the UK did in 2008. So, of course, we're (laughs) more than a decade behind. Um, But basically, it would be a a net zero emissions target by 2050. 
which that's the headline figure of it. Um, But she's been using this phrase, it would be like a framework or like a roadmap to getting to that 2050 target. Um, And she's found some supporters within the government. So Trent Zimmerman, um, who is the Liberal member for North Sydney, um, who, if you have been to Sydney, North Sydney, the electorate is right next to Warringah. It is is um, sort of the next one along the harbour. So I think that Trent Zimmerman's looking over mm-hmm. at Zali Stegall, saw what she did in toppling Tony Abbott, the amount of anger in her electorate she was able to tap into about climate change. And I think that he would be terrified for his own electoral prospects, but also has been pretty steadily a moderate f- figure in the government. Um, Elsewhere, there's Katie Allen, who's in Victoria, the member for Higgins. She's come out in support of a 2050 target if we can show a pathway. Um, And then there's also um, Falinski as well. Jason. Yeah, yeah. Jason Falinski, um, who has has come out in, in support of it as well. So that support in the government is interesting. Whether, firstly, the the Prime Minister will even let that bill come up for debate, that's an open question. And then stemming from that, if there will be a conscience vote, which would allow members to, to vote on their conscience, they wouldn't be bound to sort of the party line. Mm. That's sort of a secondary question. It's a very unlikely that this bill will happen, um, but I think it is pushing the government and it is wedging Morrison very, very effectively, um, much more effectively than I think... Um, the Greens have been able to do with talk of kind of a Green New Deal since Adam Bant has been um, sort of elevated to the leadership. I think that that's been sort of more of an ideal and this, this the tangibility of this bill I think is, is making people feel a bit more hopeful that they could wedge the Prime Minister. Mm. Well, the title of the bill at the moment is the Climate Change in Brackets National Framework for Adaptation and Mitigation in Bracket Bill 2020. And it um, says or its stated aim is a bill for an act to establish a national climate change adaptation and mitigation framework and to establish the Climate Change Commission, which of course um, was gotten rid of by this government in um, previous forms, and for related purposes. So it's certainly kind of a broad um, vision for climate change action, isn't it? And the fact that it's um, not just adaptation but also mitigation. So they're the kind of key watchwords that a lot of climate change um, activists and campaigners will use is that we can't just like say oh well this is our new normal we'll get used to it but it's also about how do we stop it from escalating further yeah I think yeah it's got all the buzzwords doesn't it adaptation mitigation framework (laughs) Um, yeah I think it's it's interesting so the the targets are, I believe, five-year targets. So they're set sort of in five-year increments. And I remember when this was going through in the UK, there was a lot of push from the Conservatives to have yearly targets. Um, and I don't know if any of your listeners may have a better insight into why they were pushing for yearly targets, but sort of the the public um, line was that if you have targets every five years, you have changes of government. And so the, the blame for not meeting those targets can shift and Mm. so if you have yearly targets it's a lot easier to hold people accountable that you need to hit those targets Um, so it'll be interesting to see I think climate policy in Australia has been built around being able to shift blame in a lot of ways and and being able to sort of mitigate the (laughs) mitigate and adapt um, 
blame so that it isn't doesn't land on your party and that's not an effective way to set up a does you know a crisis disaster management um sort of framework Mm -hmm. and so when we're thinking about this bill and this proposition as compared with previous approaches which we've seen like a a quote-unquote carbon tax we've seen a um ETS, like there have been a range of kind of propositions and the latest one was um, the National Energy Guarantee, which was kind of an indirect way of apparently reducing our emissions through, you know, um, having greater planning and control over our energy and where it comes from. Um, And Labor at the last election, you know, adopted the coalition's policy of this National Energy Guarantee, uh, which was really the reason, part of the reason why Malcolm Turnbull is now no longer. Uh, Prime Minister or leader of the Liberal Party. Um, what does this kind of proposition and framework mean in compared with all the past um, iterations of climate policies that we've seen before? Mm. I think that there's been sort of a more than a decade of testing different tools to try and bring in some sort of, you know, actual thing that will force um, our market and our and our economy into adapting to climate change and testing the political appetite for that right so there was the um the ETS um there was a carbon taxes talk about um sort of like carbon credits there's creating a market it seems like there has been zero political appetite within those who can make a difference but also those who can wedge the government to push something like this through. It has toppled many prime ministers, one prime minister multiple times. And so I think the sensitivity of the mining industry and the fossil fuel industry um, and associated markets in that has been so intense that nothing has been possible. Like even the NEG, which was a fairly, you know, it was a fairly not toothless is an affair, but it was it was very mm. much a, a technical thing. Um, I think the idea with this climate act is to try and walk the line between being very top line, so there isn't anything that is that makes industry absolutely bulk and say no, but also have something that is tangible enough that it wins over skeptics who think not climate skeptics but skeptics that think that this is impossible that's Mm. a really hard line to walk to not scare off people who are very very sensitive to anything being done on climate change in Australia while also making people feel like this is enough to vote for because in the past we have had bills come up that haven't been strong enough that haven't um, gotten support from the Greens or from others because they said that you know this isn't enough we're going to hold back and we're going to try and push you to do something more tangible. Mm. Well that's been part of the criticism of this bill by some of the um, leaders in the sector about around climate change action is to say that this probably just isn't enough in their mind to be I guess useful obviously we're coming from a very low baseline of you know nothing to see here what we've got now is fine we're going to you know quote meet and beat our targets which um, as many people have highlighted uh, the government is actually slipping in terms of reducing emissions and we're going the wrong way so I mean any action I guess you could see as being is being positive um, but then others as 
as we've said, is that 2050 is a long time away. How are you going to reach that goal if you don't have a really clear vision of how you're going to get there in, you know, little increments? Mm. Um, We've seen the kind of pushback from some of the members of the coalition, particularly the nationals on this issue. Why do you think that the Liberal Party is so kind of... um, affected by the Nationals' position on this, given that the Nationals is a smaller part of the party room, you know, is are these moderates in the Liberal Party a very small part of the, the overall party view on climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason that they're so affected by the Nationals is because the government doesn't have a very big majority. And so being in coalition with this party, um, this smaller party that represents a, quite a different demographic in Australia it's hard to knit that broad church together it's always been hard I think the coalition has always struggled to to sort of pull um, the disparate parts of their party together Um, and it's not just the coalition like Labor struggles with that as well but I think trying to pull together the city country divide um, has been a struggle for the coalition the thing that I think will be tricky for the nationals is coming up to the next election if we do have and we likely will have multiple summers of intense bushfires we will have you know other seasons of intense flood and and drought and um, these things are hugely affecting regional Australia which has been the base for the nationals Um, and given that they're being very recalcitrant on this policy or any policy at all in this space I think when that starts affecting them, like in elections, it will be easy to push something like this through. With the moderates, I mean, I think that's what the Liberal Party has always envisioned itself to be, kind of the, you know, the really, the really blue seats, um, the the inner city seats, the their wealthy seats, their seats where you know party donors live. They're very helpful seats to hold um, in Sydney around the harbour and in Victoria around Kooyong and Turak and and that eastern um, area. That's changing. Those and on the on the topic of climate is is kind of where they're shifting most dramatically. Um, Warringah was the first one, but obviously you know Dave Sharma looks over in. Um, in Sydney as well and sees that Karen Phelps hasn't gone away. Um, Karen Phelps is still very, very prominent person in Sydney and is still um, quite effectively advocating on a number of issues. So I think that those seats being turned on the issue of climate change makes it very, very difficult for that powerful donor base um, in the Liberal Party to to you know, not do anything about this. Mm. Well, it does also remind me that, <clears throat> excuse me, that many people in the country are disproportionately affected by bushfires, particularly if we even think about <clears throat> East Gippsland. They were certainly affected uh, hugely. And there are a number of people, and particularly I'm thinking independents, uh, like Helen Haynes, who took over uh, the seat of Indi, which is a very agricultural and country seat. And um, she certainly is pro-climate action and has, um, you know, received donations from people who want her to advocate more on climate change. And I guess a lot of people might say that the stereotype of people from the country, farmers on the land, um, you know, they're all dealing with drought that is made worse by climate change and presumably some of those or it's hard to know what proportion it 
proportion of them um, are pro taking more action on climate change because it is directly affecting their lives and it means that they have to import tanks of water into their properties and buy tons of um, feed for their livestock from outside because they can't grow their own hay. You know, these are things which are you know very much affecting rural and regional um, Australia. And some people have, I guess, raised the question: Are the nationals really representing their constituents? Yeah, a lot of people have raised that question, mm. and I think there there was analysis done. Um, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but that was looking at how the nationals voted and it was much more often with resources and and, um, fossil fuel interests than it was with agricultural or their bases interests. Um, And not to, you know, cast back to 2019 politics, (laughs) but I think the um, management of the Murray-Darling system and the chaos that ensued from that, um, I think the image of many many um like towns across regional australia having to as you said truck water in um is is very hard for them to spin and it's so visceral and it's in these communities where they have enjoyed very you know comfortable support for a really long time and haven't really had to work to win those seats Mm. and then you see someone like helen haynes being very very effective in an independent seat um i think that the issue of climate change is fundamentally changing the the you know mathematics of Australian politics. It is, and um, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison, in response to this idea of a net zero um, by twenty fifty, he said, "I don't sign up to anything when I can't look Australians in the eye and tell them what it costs, how many jobs it's going to cost them, what it means for their industries, what it means for rural and regional parts of the country, whether it means they'd have to pay higher taxes, and none of that information is before me that would enable me to give any such commitment, and I haven't." I mean, it seems a little bit disingenuous, doesn't it? That kind of statement of I just don't have that information on me, there is no evidence to to show the cost. Yeah, I mean, I think it is hard to cost what the next, you know, 30 years is going to look like because you have technologies that are going to be invented that will fundamentally change what the trajectory is to get to net zero. Um, But the government has an entire office that is dedicated to trying to cost things out. They have the parliamentary budget office. If they wanted to commit to trying to do something like this, to setting a target and working back from that, the PBO would be able to provide them with predictions of what that would be and you know how accurate that is, that would be within you know a certain band. But they have an entire office dedicated to this. If, if adapting to climate change if trying to minimise the impact that it's going to have is a, something that the government wants to commit to. They have the tools at hand to do that and they have the tools at hand much more than, you know, Zali Stegel would have as an independent or the opposition would have not having the same access to the PBO. Exactly. And it um, when these bushfires were raging, uh, I saw some people remind us and I certainly thought about this. Um, in the 2019 election campaign, we saw Bill Shorten really get skewered on climate change policy, and particularly uh, journalists were saying, "Oh, but you don't know how much this is going to cost us acting on climate change." And his um, answer was, "Well, what's the cost of not acting, and also that 
you know, by acting on climate change and moving into renewable energy and actually being kind of ahead of the curve and maybe being part of the technology um, and selling technology to other countries around renewable energy could actually mean that the cost is reduced substantially by growing a different part of the Australian economy. And it seems like this risk aversion and um, fear mongering around a cost uh, doesn't really take into account those other items which are what's the cost of not acting eg now we have a massive cost which is dealing with the bushfires that we've just seen and uh, and you know Josh Frydenberg coming out to say well we might not have the surplus that i had predicted because we have to spend all this money on uh, bushfire recovery as well as obviously the impact of coronavirus what are your thoughts on that kind of trade off yeah i mean there's always going to be a trade off and i do think that the the bushfire recovery um, you know, investing that money in those regions is actually going to be helpful, like for those regions, because it is a huge investment that we've not seen by the federal government in regional areas. Um, and it's tragic that it had to come from such devastating circumstances to push the government to spend money um, on on developing these towns and, and, and trying to help people stand on, you know, bring themselves back up after something like this. But I think the the pros and cons of acting on climate change are an open uh, – uh, the economic impacts are an open debate, right? We don't really know what's going to happen to the economy if we do this or that. We can, we can predict, but we never know to 100%. I think the realities that we know is that, you know, coal-fired power stations are becoming completely untenable economically – there's a push to have gas as a transitionary fuel and perhaps that will make that will give a small injection into the economy for a few years but what's the investment um, versus how many years is it going to pay off for us versus how much emissions is there going to be in that um, that's a question what we do know is that the current energy mix that we have is not working and it's going to fall into decline and if we want to be able to have a strong economy in 10, 20, 30 years, we need to invest in what the thing is that's going to come after that. It's n- not to make it – because it is a moral choice that if you want to act on climate change, if you think it is the most important issue of our time, there is like a moral and ethical choice to make there. But there is a strong economic argument that mm. <laughs> should help to lead you in that direction. Um, and I think that, you know, Ross Garneau's book, Superpower, that came out last year, made a really good argument for Australia trying to get out in front of of transitioning to greener energy um, because it is a space that we have done really well in before. We, we are an innovative country. If we invest in technology and um, the skills that we have, we have huge um, levels of higher education. We have a very smart population who could you know our our next boom could be green energy many people have said that um but I do think that in all of this mix there's a piece I think it's on the front of the Australian today saying that um Scott Morrison will take a new climate action plan to Glasgow for COP26 in um in November so at COP25 Australia was the you know, was the was the bad kid of COP25. We were the one that was pushing it back against um, taking out um, carryover credits from, from the agreement. Um, and 
at at COP25, um, you know, the people pushing for that to be taken out, um, it was called the anti-Australia clause. Like there was this real, we were seen as a recalcitrant, you know, Mm. troublemaker. We're coming into COP26 um, sort of with this new climate plan that is centred around technology investment. What that means, very unclear. But I think that after all of this focus on climate over the last few weeks, you have a story on the front of the Australian that's saying that the there are reports emerging that the government is going to bring this is showing that the Prime Minister is being wedged on this issue and is being seen to have to to have to adapt to it. Um, and I think no more so than the Business Council of Australia coming out and committing to that 2050 target as well and saying that we need to push towards this. That is very, very effective um, in his cabinet room to be able to advocate to do something. Mm. Well, it's true that we really did get um, an even worse international reputation from that last meeting. Um, and it was certainly <clears throat> happening amongst at the backdrop of fires in New South Wales that had already been burning for a couple of months. Uh, when we look at the other side of politics, the green side of politics, um, as you mentioned before, Adam Bant is now the leader. I like that leader. the other side of politics, when we talk about climate change, is the Greens, yeah, not the opposition, not- which I think is very telling. Isn't it? Exactly. Um, well, they are, I mean, Labor and the Coalition at the moment are hard to distinguish on many points of climate change policy. And I think Labor is kind of saying, oh, don't look at us. We're not the, we're not in government. It's their problem. We need to wait see what happens and then we can develop our policy again for the next election which is still quite a while away given we've just had the last one um so when we're looking at the greens who seem to be really focused unsurprisingly on climate change is one of their main priorities um adam bant has really put his name next to the phrase green new deal which is not a new idea it's um something that's certainly been pursued in America by people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What is the Australian Greens conception of a Green New Deal and is this something that will be interesting and might actually contribute or or push anyone um, to a certain point in climate policy in Australia? Yeah, I think it probably stems from a lot of things, but I think I don't know what your impression was, but mine was that over summer the Greens weren't as present as I thought that they would have been given the environmental destruction that we were seeing. Mm. Um, And so I think that in being elevated to the leadership, Adam Bant is trying to really catch up and he wants to put this policy out there that he's been talking about for a long time. I think the Greens have been using that phrase since about 2009 So it's been a phrase that's been thrown around a lot. But in terms of detail, I think that we're lacking on what it would look like. Um, But it is fundamentally the same thing that that Stegall and the Business Council and everyone's pulling at, which is trying to knit together the the need to adapt to climate change, the need to do something about emissions and the fear that that is going to cost jobs. And those two things, I think it is trying to address both of them at the same time and say we don't need to absolutely gut industry and, you know, middle class, working class jobs in order to transition to a green economy. That is not what that means. Mm. Um, how how they want to um, articulate that and how they want to distinguish it from the the US deal and other Green New Deals that are being discussed around the world, that'll be interesting to see. 
Indeed. And uh, one of the interesting parts of the Green New Deal is this idea that um, we need to make sure that we don't leave anyone behind, that we have a, a caring economy as well as a clean economy in terms of energy. And that's um, some of the language that Adam Bant has been using recently. And it seems like it's not purely economic but it has a lot of social policy to it as well which is that you know we're all in this together and that we need to make sure that everyone is supported when we're transitioning into a new way of of acting of purchasing of producing products what are your thoughts on this idea that we need to and and the social idea is just as important as the economic idea and the environmental idea yeah I'm I think that like the social aspect of it is about I think that the the term community gets thrown around a lot right but I think that it is about making people feel like there is some sort of safety net during this transition and that everyone in their community is participating in trying to make this transition Um, and I think often in regional areas or in in you know working class areas where there has been um, a plant closed down or some sort of factory like or a major manufacturer pull out there's you know job retraining and it is a very amorphous thing and you go to an office and you sit there and you do like an online course or you go along to something and it feels like you're very isolated And it feels like you're hoping that maybe this works because you don't have any other options. Um, And so I think that the idea of having social policy that that sort of complements economic and environmental policy is about people not being terrified during that transition. Because when people are scared, they're very vulnerable to someone who will say, we should go back to how it was, which is what's happened so many times in the last decade in Australia in trying to push towards something on climate action. Mm. And perhaps the reason why some of these workers are concerned and have fear when they think about losing their jobs or needing to find a new role or industry is that the coalition at the moment doesn't do welfare and social policy particularly well. And in fact, many Australians expect that those who are reliant upon New Start to retrain or get a new job somewhere else um, are actually put under a lot of stress and are scared about their financial security and have things to contend with like robo-debt, like a cashless welfare card being trialled in more and more places across Australia. Um, these are things which are kind of people are quite aware of, that the poor and the unemployed are, you know, subjected to a lot of unnecessary stress and financial insecurity. Mm. I mean, it's incredibly, it's incredibly stressful to not have a job in Australia it is I I think it is a huge source of anxiety and stress in our in our country is the you know the situation of not having any space to breathe when you are trying to find a new job Um, but I think that part of it as well is the fact that we haven't been articulated a vision of what this could look like when it goes well Um, and I mean like transitioning to a green economy. And I I have mentioned Roscano before, but I think that that was an attempt to give people something to imagine because we don't have any image of what this looks like. We haven't been given any hopeful image. And, you know, you're probably never going to achieve that hopeful, like blue sky vision of what this would look like. But I think that people need something to hold on to. Like they need something that they can envision. 
Otherwise, the thing that feels the best is what they know, the current situation, because it might be bad, but at least it's it's what they know. Um, but I think that what happened over summer with the bushfires was the reality that if we cling on to what we know, that's going. Like there's nothing mm. we can do to keep what we have. Um, and so I think that there's a moment, and I, I don't know if Zali Stegel is the politician to do it, and I don't know if there is anyone in the government or the opposition opposition to do it but someone who can articulate a vision of of what this would look like and what you should be hoping for and what you can sort of you know believe in is a very um political term but I think you know something that something that is bigger than um these really technical conversations about the neg or they like they're they're great and they're important but I think that that top line vision isn't even there yet Mm. well we (laughs) vision isn't really a a word that's been associated with the coalition government all that much in recent (laughs) years is it it's uh no it hasn't um I think it's it's a small target government it's Mm. it's always it, it hasn't always been that I think that there have been times when they've been very ambitious um, in the past, but I, I don't think that this is a particularly ambitious government when it comes to reform. I think the first year of the Morrison government was an entire policy vacuum other than tax, you know, reforms. I I don't think that there has been anything, um, there hasn't been anything articulated that is exciting or, or, um, or you know, transformative. Mm. But that's also the nature of conservative leadership. It's about retaining um, the status quo rather than pushing towards anything. So I, I'm not sure why we would expect something dramatic. Um, Maybe not in Australia, but the UK, as you've said, and the conservatives there have certainly taken up the challenge of climate change, haven't mm. they? Definitely. I mean, they they have a different economy, right? We have a hugely minerals and fossil fuels reliant economy. So I think the the... Out, you know, the mathematics of it are slightly different. Mm. But I think that other countries have been more effective in making climate change an apolitical t- topic of conversation. It's it's like it's something that has completely – it's completely politicised in Australia and you can't have a non-political conversation about it. And why is that? Why isn't it, you know, something that we can talk about as, as you know, this – if 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 a if we were standing, I don't want to do like a metaphor, but like if you were standing on like a dock and there was a huge cruise liner coming towards you, not being able to stop, it it wouldn't be a conversation about whether or not we should do anything about it. You would know that you would have to do something about it. Mm. Um, and I I don't know. I just I I think that just it being a, an issue, an economic issue about jobs or the power of the resources industry. There's something else there as well. There's something about not wanting to to change and and fear of of change that I think is is quite central to Australian political life. Certainly, it is at the moment, and um, we don't have a lot of change on the table. The only major change the coalition seems to be focused on is the um, religious discrimination bill, which is all around, um, you know, religious freedoms and and this idea that uh, people who have a religion aren't able to, I guess, exercise their views in a way that is 
Australia should be able to. This is the kind of argument that coalition members are putting forward, like Christian Porter and, of course, Scott Morrison, who is a Christian himself. Um, and that will certainly be interesting to watch. Um, let's just finish off this chat by mentioning that there is a Senate inquiry happening right now about um, the sports rorts saga, which um, is obviously continuing. It's an ongoing thing and we see new developments and uh, information arising all the time. And in the last uh, couple of days, we saw um, Senator Erica, sorry, Senator Eric, that'd be awkward, Erica Betts, <laughs> Um, who has been a long-time coalition uh, backbencher and also previous minister, and he was asking about um, whether the projects were eligible or ineligible when it eventually was funded, and we're talking about this um, the main uh, funding grant. And um, apparently 43% of the projects that received funding uh, were considered ineligible by the time that they were funded. I... I wish that there was footage of Erica Betts's face when the question that he asked that he thought was kind of mm. a softball turned out to be probably the worst political story for the government of last week. He sort of asked the question about ineligible grants thinking that there would be none and then um, the head of their audit office turns around <laughs> and says 43% of them were ineligible. Um, it's a big number. It's, I mean, it's hugely significant, yeah. but I think the the thing about sports rorts is that and you know many reporters have said this is that this grant scheme was just one of many many grant schemes um we're not talking about a hundred million dollars we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in grants that were set up in the lead up to the 2019 election with very little transparency um Karen Middleton, who is a political reporter at the paper, reported last week on the Environmental Restoration Fund, which was another $100 million grant. Um, it was only eligible for 25 grantees who were on a list. Um, they were already listed, pre-selected. They were the only ones that were allowed to apply. Um, and Karen found out that some of the people who won these grants only found out when they got a phone call out of the blue saying, oh, you've won this money could you apply for this grant? Um, and that's like a huge problem. So I think that the the furor over sports rots is is important and I think the lack of transparency in this one scheme is, is very important to look into. But the reality is that this is much bigger than just this one grant scheme. It is it is a large amount of money that was, you know, directed into the federal election campaign with very little scrutiny um, and... I, I mean, I would like to see the same amount of scrutiny on all of these grant schemes that was on the sports the sports grant scheme. Yeah, let's hope that that does happen because um, if it doesn't happen in this inquiry, no doubt it will come up in Senate estimates when that happens again. Everyone's favourite time of the year, I'm My sure. favourite time. <laughs> Most other people don't know it's happening, but don't worry, I will raise it and make sure that everyone's aware in case they want to live stream it from the Parliament website. Um, Madison, it's been fantastic speaking with you today and thanks so much for talking about this rather um, controversial but shouldn't be topic of climate change. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Madison Kenorton, who is editor of the Saturday paper and we've been talking about the latest in federal politics, particularly the ongoing issues with climate policy in Australia. And you are tuned in to 3RRR FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm really delighted 
to have with me a returnee guest to Uncommon Sense. Uh, his name is Professor Brendan Wintle, and Brendan is a conservation ecologist at the University of Melbourne in the School of Biosciences, and he's also director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. And uh, he joins me now in the studio to talk about the status of Australia's threatened species, flora and fauna, and um, particularly looking at those species that have been affected by the bushfires that we saw over the summer period, um, and also what we are doing now to deal with that crisis. So I welcome Brendan now. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Amy. Great to be here, as always. It's really always fun to chat with you. I know it's a very serious subject, but it is um, really interesting given your role because you do have a really great privileged position, really, of having oversight of so many different areas of conservation in Australia and being part of um, some of these important bodies and roundtables that are assessing impacts and the issues that we're now facing uh, Mm. post these bushfires. First up, um, given what has happened over the summer, I know a lot of people who have a deep connection with nature and this country would have been really distressed by what we saw, Mm. like the vision as well as, you know, a lot of people's own properties, um, the animals that they might be caring for or that they have a connection with that are native Mm. to their area. And also a lot of activists who've been working so hard on protecting these species pre-bushfires mm. who are now really concerned about the status of some of these um, animals who've had their habitat um, destroyed or in a large mm. part at least. So from your perspective, given that and that, you know, I guess very emotional experience, what was your feeling in the academic and conservation community and how people are just generally feeling about what's happened mm. in the last few months? Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. So uh, I guess just initially to say that this is really a devastating uh, blow to uh, people of Victoria, anybody uh, in the uh, Victoria and New South Wales in particular, but also in Queensland and South Australia who have been in the path of these fires, first of all, uh, just... Um, shocking really for them to see uh, what's happening to their land and their country um, and the things that they're they're so uh, strongly connected to and passionate about and that can be wildlife and nature but it can also Mm. just be the farm and and we're up in um, Midamitter over the summer which is up in northeast Victoria and we were very lucky there the winds kept blowing the right way to keep the fires away from us but we had friends in the next valley over who weren't so lucky and and just seeing what they went through uh, was was really devastating Um, um, just gutted that that whole community around uh, Koryong um, and Kuitong. I've got a, a good friend who has a farm there who lost a huge amount of stock and mm. just really, um, you know, really devastating uh, human and natural tragedy in many ways. Brought out some amazing sides of people, though. We we had to evacuate to Albury a couple of times and um, just the generosity, uh, the desire in that local community to do something, you know, and whether it was people were not letting us pay for a meal or not letting us pay for our accommodation, which was incredibly touching. Mm. Um, and uh, and I think there really is a great uh, spirit that, that, that comes forward in moments like this. I think it's hard now when we're sort of, I guess, through the emergency aspect from most people's perspective and we have to now reflect and take stock uh, and from a conservation and threatened species perspective, consider what what we've lost and and really what we can do now. So, yeah, really challenging time for a lot of people in our game. 
Definitely. And um, that's a great point about livestock because uh, obviously a lot of people didn't get an a clear warning um, and uh, even if you had a warning how do you evacuate such huge numbers of livestock no. and where do you put them <laughs> yeah exactly i look yeah. in many cases in those areas uh, it's a matter of uh, opening up some of your fences and just hoping that they can find a place that doesn't burn mm. um, you know there that that can work depends on the fire uh, but the fires down in gippsland the intensity maps of those fires is something that i haven't really seen before just the incredible areas in magnitude of of uh, or the scale of the impact where whole landscapes have been sort of eviscerated some of the footage from that area is really a bit scary and and that's a bit of a I guess a change up of course we've had really hot really terrifying fires in the past but this area over which you ha- we're seeing incredible destruction just seems more comprehensive than what we've seen in the past that these fires weren't really skipping the gullies they were burning down into areas that wouldn't usually burn the, the wet moist gully bottoms usually they would these fires will skip from from ridge to ridge uh, mm. and leave a, a nice pattern of of living um, forest in 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 between but um a lot of the uh, indications are that, that there was a special ferocity to these fires and perhaps it comes on the end of a really long dry period, uh, incredibly um, volatile weather conditions and, uh, and sort of almost unprecedented in the geography and the intensity uh, of this impact this time around. Mm. Well, and given that you are out in that area um, and we've seen a discussion around drought and the fact that we've um, the fuel loads and the fuel that made these fires so significant was so dry. A lot of people have um, raised the fact that it's not just New South Wales that has been dealing with drought, but certainly um, parts of Gippsland have suffered from very long dry periods. Mm. Um, South Gippsland didn't because I saw how wet it was uh, at the end of last year. What are your thoughts on the contribution of drought to these fires and to the loss of habitat that we've seen? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Definitely a contribution and in some ways uh, there's sort of a two-fold hit. Um, the first is that, as you say, the, the areas are ready to burn. They're dry. Uh, if they haven't had a burn for a fair few years, there's a lot of dry fuel there. Uh, and uh, the, the timing was such that um, because everything was so dry, the fires could happen fairly early in the season. Um, the, the second component to that is the recovery. So after drought, a lot of ecologists and botanists are just unsure about how well plants are going to be able to recover given that they, these fires have come off the end of, of a drought like this. Is the seed store um, going to be right? Is there enough moisture and uh, organic matter in the soil uh, to allow recovery? So there's some open questions and we're not going to know the answers to some of these questions for a while. And we're talking about immense areas Uh, I think it's probably worth just reflecting for people and people have probably seen the maps but the the total footprint of the fire looks like it's going to be somewhere around 11 to 15 million hectares that's bigger than the size of England you know spread across uh, the the southeast mostly and uh, at least 6 million hectares of habitat for threatened species has been um, burnt really badly so so we're really this is a really, really big 
our fire season. It's not over yet as well. Uh, we've had some rain, fortunately, down here, but uh, I think there's a real possibility of, of fires again later in the season. So we're looking mm. at sort of an unprecedented scale. And remember, it was only in 2009 that we had Black Saturday and we, you know, this is, this is a pretty high frequency and this is one of the real concerns now is that these are not one in 30 or 50-year events anymore. They seem to be one in five years and that's a real problem for the ecology of a lot of our um, a lot of our forest especially a lot of the forest trees like alpine ash um, need gaps between the fire greater than sort of 15 or 20 years so that they can have the chance to reach sexual maturity and and have seed to drop Mm. uh, so that they can regenerate in the ash bed Uh, the total area of alpine ash now that's been burnt twice or more inside a window of 20 years has doubled with this last fire from about um, uh, to over a million hectares. So, so this is a really, big, uh, a really big change in the ecology of these systems. So we might see areas that were mountain alpine ash that supported all of the amazing animals and plants in the alpine ash system reverting to something else. And that's a real concern for both that ecosystem but also for all of the species that depend on it. Mm. Well, it seems like we're in some unknown territory, really, given the scale and also the types of um, trees, particularly, but also Mm. other vegetation that were affected. Mm. Um, I have seen that there's been discussion around the fact that in that some trees, when they're burned, as you've said, too frequently means that they're more prone to bushfire and fire risk again Mm. in a shorter time frame. Mm. Is that one of the concerns that you might have when you're looking at conservation and rebuilding habitat it is a concern Uh, it's mostly a concern in the sense that i think we used to think mountain ash for example the the beautiful tall forests that exist just out to the east of of melbourne uh, was an ecosystem that would only burn every couple of hundred years you know you Mm. get these great big beautiful tall trees and then then every couple of hundred years you get a great big fire going through there and that for some reason the regrowth of this species wasn't so flammable it wasn't so susceptible to wildfire that appears not to be the case now there seems to be no relationship between when a place last burnt and the probability that a fire will whoosh through it again so uh, that's some really good work Uh, David Lindemeyer's been involved in that and others um, at ANU and at Melbourne uh, are discovering that these these places are really susceptible to fire on crazy fire days and and the and the and the sort of state of the knowledge now seems to be that it's weather that drives fire not so much the substrate not so much the forest type or the um or the time since fire it's mm. the weather so if you've had a bit of dry it's been hot enough and then you get a 44 45 46 degree day with hot northerlies and then a sudden change um stuff's going to burn and so it's just whether you're in the way or not uh, at the time uh, and you know when we get more and more of these fires we're seeing less and less of that old habitat that's been there for a long time and as we know very many species really rely on that old habitat to persist species like greater gliders and yellow belly gliders that have been declining significantly in our forests already are really really in trouble uh, in the in the face of these fires and they are listed in the sort of top 100 animals of greatest concern that the uh, threatened species commissioner and her expert panel put forward uh, last week as as a list of species that we're most concerned about so you know some really iconic species there that uh, that have been really dramatically impacted 
there's uh, there's a, a very long list, of course, 113 mm. species that uh, uh, that look like they've been really heavily impacted. That's just animals. We're waiting on the plant list, but it's going to be in the hundreds. So we're going to be having a list of species around three, four hundred species that we're really worried about in terms of risk of extinction, largely resulting from the particular impact of these fires, compounding the fact that they were already, you know, on the edge somewhat. So. Yeah. So that's really concerning. And just as a bit of an indication, there were over 115 species that lost more than half of their mapped range in these fires. So if you lose about 10% of your range over 10 years, that gives you status as a, under the International Union for Conservation of Nature, it gives you status as a threatened species or an endangered species. Mm. So just to put that in context, these species have lost half their range in a week or more, some of them 80%, 90%. So the um, the long-footed potteroo, for example, in East Gippsland, the kangaroo island dunnart, glossy black cockatoo, you know, really amazing iconic species that people have been working to try and conserve tirelessly over decades. Zhoof, more than 80% of their range just swallowed up in these fires. So there's a real uh, acute appreciation of the need for emergency action for a lot of these species now. And so if we're thinking... Just to bring it back to the plants, which you mentioned are still undergoing assessment, how difficult is it for conservationists to do these kind of impact assessments um, given the scale that we've seen? It's you know a lot mm. more than we've seen in previous um, bushfire seasons. Mm. How difficult is it for, for you guys and the whole, I guess, team of conservation ecologists across Australia to really get in and understand the scale of the impact. Oh, absolutely. So there's sort of two phases of understanding the impact. The first phase is just using mapping. And so obviously how well you can analyse the impact for a species depends on how good your maps are. Uh, and very many, um, very many species don't have great we don't know exactly where they are. Um, mm. They're distributed through this massive eastern forests um, and we don't know exactly where they are uh, and where their crucial habitat is. But for many species we do. So mostly that initial impact is based on maps of their range or their suitable habitat, uh, overlaying that with maps of the fire footprint. And that's the sort of first wave. And, and when people say, you know, 114 species have lost more than half of their distribution, this is based on mapping. So it's a sort of a desktop exercise. Yep. The next wave of assessment is um, people trying to get out onto the fire ground and going to the places where they used to uh, find these species and saying, well, are they still here? And if they are, in what condition are they going to persist? Do we need to introduce emergency actions to try and save these species and that's very hard mostly people can't get onto the fire ground still um, in several weeks after the uh, after the fires because it's too dangerous this you know dead trees going to fall on your head there's people after the 2009 fires there was a horrible tragedy where uh, one of the ladies on the fire crew got washed away and drowned because the water flowing across the um across the fire ground is so much more severe because there's no vegetation to slow it down and you get mm. these rapidly forming erosion gullies so the rains after the fire can be very damaging too and very dangerous so getting people into the fire ground to assess damage or to do recovery actions is quite tricky in the first month after fire yeah and so what kind of time frame do you think it might be that this assessment 
is ongoing for you know during this year yeah it's it's probably going to be look we've made those initial assessments mm. uh, we know that there's a lot of species that are in trouble as a result of these fires uh, but that really detailed site level assessment that's going to be weeks to months from here on uh, and keep in mind this is a big task mm. we're talking about fires right up the eastern coast of australia uh, species that can be distributed almost from melbourne to, to brisbane so it, it's a really massive task to get out and assess on the ground the impact for these species. So, yes, weeks to months. There's been some amazing work already. Uh, a team from zoos, Victoria and the Victorian government, have been out uh, pulling out eastern bristlebirds. Uh, there's some, been some scientists from Arthur Ryler Institute who have been pulling out native fish because they're particularly susceptible to fire impacts due to runoff of sediment and toxins into the water after the fire, even downstream where... There hasn't been a fire. It's like mm. downstream of the fire, these fish can be um, can be basically poisoned. The, the, the streams become uh, warmer and hypoxic, and they get so much sediment in them that, that they can no longer live in those streams. So, scientists have been pulling those uh, some of those individuals out and taking them to aquariums to try and keep them going um, until they can be restored back into the into the, the wild. Um, same with the bristlebirds. Uh, but there are a bunch of other species that we know we'd love to get in and salvage, but we can't get into the fire grounds yet. Some of the plants, I know the Royal Botanic Gardens have been wanting to get out to Cape Howe, which is out to the east of Malacuta, to salvage plants and seed from that area. But they can't get in. It's too dangerous, and the fire control is not going to let them in for a little while yet. So, mm. so yep, safety first, and then saving species second, and that takes time, unfortunately. Yeah, and I do also note that there were quite a number of um, camera systems and monitoring systems that were in these areas that have also been damaged or mm. destroyed to varying extents, and were one tool that conservationists and ecologists had to actually track mm. the the number of animals come, walking around and yeah. you know coming past these areas mm. what kind of um i guess damage are we aware of in terms of the monitoring tools that we already had in the landscape Look, there's definitely cases, um, particularly we had some uh, a bunch of sites, we as in the Threatened Species Recovery Hub working with the South Australian government, had sites in uh, Kangaroo Island uh, that were monitoring recovery of um, Kangaroo Island dunnarts after um, feral predator removal. Um, yeah, they lost all of their cameras, melted. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's an information loss there. Um, to be honest, the cameras themselves are the least of our concerns, even though they're kind of expensive. We've seen some nice um, gestures, the Australian and Wildlife Conservancy are a large conservation organisation. They donated a bunch of cameras to people to try and uh, reinstitute uh, monitoring on on Kangaroo Island. Um, but yes, there are there are many cases where people have been studying species and their study sites have been destroyed. Uh, their study species has been, you know, massively impacted. This has a big psychological impact on the mm. scientists um, and on the people who have been dedicating their lives to conserving these species. So, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a material impact there. But I, I would say generally um, we're much more concerned about the species than we are about our camera traps. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so when we're thinking about places like Kangaroo Island, you've mentioned the Dunnart um, there, which is, you know, a high-profile example. And there's another at Kangaroo Island, the is it glossy black yeah, glossy cockatoo, black cockatoo. Mm. which is really impressive mm, amazing bird. yeah mm. and so that had you know as i was scrolling through my twitter feed during the bushfires and mm. on the day that kangaroo island was really affected mm. um many people brought up the black black glossy 
cockatoo. Yeah, yeah. Um, what situation did that cockatoo have find itself in pre-bushfires and mm. what's happened since then? Well, look, this is one of those species that's now incredibly restricted in its range. Um, it's, uh, this is the glossy black cockatoo. There's um, significant concerns for its long-term viability already. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively small population. Uh, a large proportion of the area of its habitat has been destroyed. Uh, we don't really know... Um, the status of that species now following the there's there's been birds seen um good thing about big birds is that they can escape fire um Mm. cockatoos are somewhat uh, versatile in their ability to hang on for at least for a little while after a fire by going and utilizing other habitats um bit harder if you're a done out to get out of the way of a, of a massive you know conflagration like that but so yeah that we, we actually have a workshop on kangaroo island next week with the south australian government to try and figure out what the strategy is going to be for these species and other species on the island I, you know we we focus a lot on these bigger animals and, and in some cases we have captive breeding programs and if we don't we're going to be looking to set them up pronto for a lot of these species but um you know there's things like the um the carpenter bee on on um, kangaroo island it only exists now on kangaroo island in a small patch in new south wales it used to be all through south australia and victoria um that's been massively impacted by the fires they need you know they need uh, they're amazing animal they're beautiful green bee and they they they're carpenter bee they burrow into excavate out soft wood uh, and with a lot of these fires now a lot of the soft wood's burnt up and gone um, the banksias and the um, and the the grass trees so there's sort of emergency actions that we can institute now for species like that to bring in you know bee homes and beehives or and look at translocating those into areas where they used to be that we might be able to find suitable habitat for them again so that's one of literally hundreds of species so there's going to be a lot of activity over the next months mm. uh, with people trying to find innovative strategies to to keep these species in the game really uh, yeah really challenging but I think there's a lot of therapy for conservation people and for the public if they can get involved in some kind of positive um, action uh, around conservation. Um, and certainly uh, that's the case. Seeing an incredible uh, influx of interest from people who are just trying to figure out how they can help, whether who they should donate to, can they help a, a volunteer group or a friends of group and and by and large, the answer is yes. You know, there's lots of volunteer groups and friends of groups that you can join and, and try and work on. A lot of these species that have been heavily impacted by the fires and recently, like platypus and lyrebird, they exist on the fringes of towns. Um, we can actually do something in our own backyards to try and make these things uh, safer in our urban environments. Yep. And so let's just quickly talk about the platypus because I know that you um, co-authored an article with colleagues uh, from the University of Sydney about the platypus, which is um, certainly under threat. Mm. And I'm interested in that because a lot of people would think that um, animals like the koala and the platypus would be quite healthy Mm. um, in population size, at least 
pre-bushfire. What was the status and what is the status now of um, of like animals like the platypus, which is such an iconic mm. symbol for Australia and a really rare kind of oh, amazing, yeah, yeah, incredibly yeah. unique um, in the in the tree of life. They're often a funny little branch on their own. <laughs> of course, there's not many monotremes around in the world. Look, platypus are, uh, as you say, a species that were incredibly widespread in Australia. Still their geographic range is large, but the analysis that Gillard did from uh, UNSW was that they've lost around 40% uh, of their range since European colonisation. So uh, we're talking, you know, a really big decline over uh, 150, 200 years, and that's driven Mm. by by forces that are still at play now. The river regulation, clearing and damaging of vegetation around streams, silting up streams, uh, warming. So there's a lot of places where you take the vegetation around the local environment away and it reduces stream water quality, which means that for the animal itself and also for its food, uh, it's a a much less suitable environment. So, um, yeah, 40% decline from a massive range back to a much smaller range is a dramatic decline and the pressures on this species are just getting worse and worse under changing warming climates, uh, reduced more stochastic rainfall, um, bigger floods and then longer droughts. You know, all of these things are very challenging for a species like this that relies on water quality and food in in water courses so you know there's things we can do for the species Um, they would be also very impacted by fire if you get a a large catchment area that is suddenly there's no canopy over the stream uh, the water temperatures increase the um, invertebrate life starts to crash that's going to really hit on species like platypus so yeah very concerning for that species as well and that's just an example uh, mm. of a species that we thought was common that we're now finding is actually not common. And uh, koalas the same. M- more problem for koalas in the north of their range. So they've been retracting quite rapidly and dramatically in Queensland and northern New South Wales for a number of years now. Um, there's sort of a story of two to distributions and, and down in Victoria um, we're obviously aware of overpopulation of, of, of koalas in, in, a, in a number of places so that's a bit more of a complicated story um, but of course you know especially as an iconic species like koala um, it's not much solace to someone in Brisbane who used to who grew up with koalas in their backyard to know that there's too many of them on Phillip Island uh, or, no, or Kangaroo yeah. Island and, and so you know if we're going to have people being connected with nature and passionate about nature they have to have exposure and and hope Uh, and I think that means keeping species through their whole range not just in little patches Mm. yeah well some of that controversy um, particularly I'm thinking the Otway ranges a lot of locals have been really sad to see a lot of habitat and trees kind of be stripped of their leaves Mm. um, by overpopulation of koalas what would you do now given that we've seen um, a number of or so many trees uh, be destroyed and a, a lack of vegetation and food, yeah. food source for yes. many, many animals, not just koalas. What does one do yeah. in a circumstance like that when there are really mm. just a, a scarcity of food and, and resources and do we end up seeing starvation and what mm. do we do to kind of combat something like that? Oh, look, that's the, you know, that's a really big question that politicians around the country have been avoiding for, for years because the solutions that we have at this stage are not really very 
politically or socially palatable. So you know there there is uh, there are programs for um, desexing koalas so that they're not um, you know breeding up at quite the same rate. We see the same ideas with kangaroos. Of course, there's large kangaroo culling programs as well, which is you know, really controversial. Um, it's a huge um, huge wildlife welfare and humanitarian issue there and it's not straightforward and conservation scientists don't really have the 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 answer to that in a social in a social sense Um, obviously these imbalances come about because we are forcing species into uh, smaller and smaller ranges uh, and they have biologies that respond to a sort of a boom bust cycle and so you do Mm -hmm. get explosions of kangaroos um, over the longer time scale that wouldn't have mattered for their overall uh, well-being because they were distributed so widely they had access to habitats they could move a long way uh, and get to areas where they could feed um, now they're kind of stuck in you know the Hadakulkine National Park the population explodes and then the food disappears and they die a horrible death so you know uh, there's, there's scientists present these options like culling and desexing uh, and it's up to society to decide whether we'd prefer to see a kangaroo starve to death or or be culled Uh, and that's a really challenging question for a lot of people yeah no doubt um i am reminded of the image of uh, new south wales but also I, th- I believe victoria followed suit of dropping carrots from helicopters and also some sweet potatoes mm. um to help some of the marsupials who are endangered mm. what are your thoughts about that because it seems like quite a temporary mm. solution to something that yeah. yeah how effective is that strategy look i think it's um they're pretty much winding up that sort of strategy right now because um, as you've had rain and you start to get natural food starting to emerge again, I think the, the need for the emergency carrots and sweet potatoes is, is probably dropped off uh, pretty dramatically. Um, it was a nice, good thing to do, I think, in that in that short term response window. Uh, but I think we're probably pretty much done with the uh, done with the food drops now. So mm. um, yeah, it's time to move on to the the, the hard work of uh, finding enough money and resources and people to do herbivore, feral herbivore and feral predator control, uh, to do habitat restoration, do the surveys, figure out the places that we now must protect because they are the last suitable habitat for a bunch of species that have been hit really hard. We have to make hard decisions about whether we're going to let people continue to log in um, long-footed potteroo habitat or greater glider habitat uh, because now what's left is precious for those species. So I think we have to totally rethink a lot of our land management in these areas and and our conservation strategies. Exactly. Well, there is currently a lot of controversy around um, the timber and forestry industry wanting to engage in salvage logging Mm. post-bushfires. What are your thoughts about that? Because I think a lot of... um, Organisations, for example, like Trust for Nature have suggested that it is important not to clear land too much because these um, burnt-out trees are actually really important habitat. Mm, Absolutely. uh, The science is pretty clear on this. Um, Salvage logging and uh, the removal of downed wood 
uh, or standing timber is uh, very bad for the recovery of the habitat values. A, a lot of these uh, forest-dependent species live in um, old dead trees and logs, um, whether they're ground mammals, lizards, um, frogs, insects, and then up in the trees, you know, things like greater gliders and, and yellow belly gliders and lead beaters, possum, they, they can live in these dead big old trees. Uh, and obviously if you knock them down, they can't. So it's pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. Uh, there's, uh, I think in these areas where that downed wood is, a, is available and these are areas of of habitat for uh, things like long-footed potteroos, long-nosed potteroos, bandicoots, all of the the 30 or 40 mammal species we're really worried about now in in Gippsland and northeast and and, and southern New South Wales. We shouldn't be salvage logging in these areas. I think this um, this loss of habitat over such a large scale makes the fight to conserve the remaining habitats and vegetation in a natural or semi-natural state even more uh, serious and and more important now. Yes, well, a lot of people have raised the Central Highlands as being a priority, um, and that's one area. But I'm also thinking that um, given we've seen so many animals burnt and needing recovery and recuperation in, Mm. you know, wildlife hospitals and, Mm. um, you know, I know that a a range of places like Zoos Victoria have been engaged in that as well. Um, There's this need then to rehome or bring animals back into the wild, Mm. but how does one make a decision about where to put them Mm. post-bushfire and where is the best place in Victoria, for example, to be um, taking these populations back? Look, mostly, um, and and I'll be a bit brutal here, um, mostly animals that have lost their habitat in an area are not going to survive. That's 99% of them. In the welfare cases where we've got burnt koalas and so on and people have have saved them, then that's wonderful. Generally, the idea is to try and get them back either into or as close to the place they came out of. Now, if they've had their habitat eviscerated for 10-kilometre radius around where they were found it's going to be hard to find a place to put them back because a lot of these animals are territorial. You can't just add in an extra greater glider or an extra possum or 10 or 20 into uh, areas that are already occupied by those species or Mm. related species. Um, They're probably going to not make it. So uh, unfortunately, many of the rescues are... uh, uh, destined for at least medium term housing in their um in their their shelter or their refuge and then in the in some cases they'll be able to be reintroduced back to near where they came from we're still not completely comfortable with shifting animals across the state or mm. across the country uh there's a little bit of that but only under very specific circumstances do we tend to do that we're probably going to need to do a bit more of that in the future as climates change and places become more or less suitable uh, for animals and plants and we want to move them to other places where we think they're going to survive. But that's quite a complex business because you're mucking around with the structure of an ecosystem. And and if you just suddenly introduce a whole bunch of new uh, elements to that ecosystem, it can have bad outcomes for some of the things that are already there. So you do have to be quite careful. A good example of that is, is, you know, um, moving uh, Tasmanian uh, devils to Mariah Island, the impact on on the seabirds. Uh, So when you play 
with parts of the ecosystem, other parts can suffer. So we have to be pretty thoughtful in the way that we do that sort of translocation of animals. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about uh, the shelters. There are so many different shelters, some that are quite small and very Mm. community-based. And one that popped up um, over the summer period was Goongura. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously a very important area for animals and trees and wildlife. Um, And there is one um, wombat shelter there, which is... um, had some prominence in the media and Mm. but there are so many others I guess that are also doing similar work across Victoria and beyond from a a conservation ecology perspective what is the role of these kind of community-based specific kind of species focused shelters Mm. and their role and job yeah look uh, there's manifold lots of good reasons to have these shelters they're a place for animal welfare so if you have an injured animal or an animal that's that's prematurely lost its parents wombats are a classic case um wonderful take them to the um take them to the the shelters in many cases they can be raised to a certain age given to you know a family or a farm or something near the bush and in case of wombats it's a great example of where reintroduction is often successful Uh, in the um in the broader scheme of conservation uh in when we're talking about saving or losing species most of the work done for um, housing species and breeding up populations is very specialist specialized work so hillsville sanctuary in victoria the zoo victoria you know they have these populations of mountain pygmy possums and and um, helmeted honey eaters and the like and you know they are doing crucial work to keep these species in the game but you know hugely challenging trying to find places to reintroduce these animals and they and for them to still survive in the wild um, very challenging the biggest challenges we have as conservation scientists is conserving species habitats and managing the threats to species in those habitats where they're conserved and that is often feral predators and feral herbivores and uh, and so and that's the sort of management priority that we need to play out nationally if we're going to stop losing species and and I guess in a sort of a it's sort of orders of magnitude more significant in terms of the conservation of species mm. as distinct from animal welfare which I'm not downplaying it's hugely important but it's a different issue if we're going to keep species from going extinct we have to be managing these really challenging issues like habitat loss and degradation that's clearing and salvage logging and 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 things like that and these invasive species they're the two main drivers of extinctions in australia and in and globally so they're the they're the key priorities and unfortunately they take lots of resources to manage and in many cases quite challenging political decisions and and um bravery yeah yeah well let's talk just quickly about the politics Mm. of this um because i note that the environment protection and biodiversity conservation act is under review Mm. and um that is a a key part piece of legislation Mm. in terms of um the national approach to the environment and conservation Mm. and we've also seen um a discussion around um, making it easier to list threatened species and making that an open process so there's not just one time mm. where people can mm. make those applications. Mm. From um, that federal level and the political level about um, the legislation and also the funding, the new funding mm. that's been announced of mm. $50 million, mm. what do you think needs to be done and is that, I guess, the first step of many steps that probably should be taken by government? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, it's definitely the first step and... and- 
both the state and the Commonwealth Government put up um, emergency funding uh, specifically around conserving species uh, in the aftermath of the fire. They both couched that as a down payment, um, a, a sort of a, a beginning. And so now we really have to figure out... A, apart from dispensing or deploying that money to the most important areas, uh, we now have to figure out what do we really need mm. to actually uh, keep these species in the game, both in the context of the fires, but actually more generally. Obviously, we already had 1,800 species on our threatened species list uh, that were there um, before the fires and, and uh, still, uh, you know, we continue to lose species in this country. So I think now is a really good time for us to sit back, um, recognising the massive impacts that have occurred and think about what it really takes to actually stop losing species both in, after the impacts of fires and, uh, and also just in general um, in terms of avoiding these, uh, these major threats that we, I was talking about a moment ago. The EPBC Act review is a, is a good opportunity to uh, to streamline and strengthen the the the, the legislation and the regulatory processes, uh, there'll be lots of different forces pulling in different directions around that review. So it's it's going to be um, interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, obviously, there's a cutting the green tape agenda that we've heard quite a lot about uh, that has a, a definitely a very worrying um, edge to it. Uh, we could be seeing um, the, the the proposition for lower regulation on on um, environmentally damaging activities so as to not slow down development of industries and mines and, and so on and so forth. So uh, that's a that's a concern. Um, the flip side to that issue is that we do need to streamline our processes, um, bureaucratic processes, because uh, we need to make sure that the people who work in government and do the regulatory stuff are doing the really important stuff and doing it quickly and doing it well. Um, and so there are opportunities to streamline things. Maybe we do need a more regional approach to um, analysing areas that are no-go in areas that are available for development um, and sticking to those kinds of plans to ensure that we're not suffering a death by a thousand cuts, uh, which is what we currently do. All these little small approvals, most of them get approved because any individual action, any development of a housing estate or any individual logging area isn't on its own going to drive a species to extinction usually, but the accumulated effect of all of those things that are happening across the country are clearly driving species to extinction. So we need to take a broad more sophisticated planning type approach to dealing with this problem of um, incremental loss of habitats and therefore the loss of species. So the review is a good time for us to, to revisit how environmental regulation and protection of species happens in this country. Mm. And so if we're talking also about private individuals who might have far, a farm mm. or you know a huge kind of land acreage mm. themselves and perhaps they it has or has not been affected by bushfires mm. what can individuals be thinking about when they're um i guess protecting species that are around their property or part mm. of their property and also i guess regenerating the land that might have been damaged yeah look that's a really good question um there are local groups Volunteer groups, friends of groups, um, friends of Mary Creek, friends of um, friends of the Leadbeater of Possum. There's a lot of groups like that that you can connect with. There's also government. Uh, so the Department of Environment, Water, Land and Planning um, is the state government department responsible. 
you can contact them at their regional office and say, I want to know what would be in my area. Um, I want to do some restoration planting. I'm going to do it in the right place so it's not, you know, eucalypts right next to my house that are going to explode into flames if we get a fire. Um, But if I do it in the right place, um, how can I um, harbour or encourage local species that might be struggling to survive? How can I help? And there there are answers to those questions. Uh, We know that there are, you know, a range of different tree and plant and shrub and grass species that you can plant to encourage species back into your farm or your or just your backyard um, things that are good for local birds things that are good for local small mammals and lizards and frogs uh, so yeah there's lots that can be done there's a lot of information on the web just go on the web and look up fire resistant native species and you'll find groups like I won't mention company names on this radio, but there are groups that recommend fire-resistant native species that you can have as almost a fire break near your house. Mm. So you can have vegetation and housing in the country and have lower fire risk and higher biodiversity value. So there's a huge opportunity there for us to get more sophisticated in the way that we um, restore vegetation into our our, um, properties. That's a, it does remind me of a group that I think does some good work and is providing recommendations on um, their Facebook group, Field Naturalists Club of Victoria, which Great. some very committed uh, mm. environmentalists on there and who really absolutely love identifying different species yep. of plants and animals. Yes. And um, that might be another resource is absolutely. to look through those community groups on Facebook or online forums. Like you've just said, there's a lot online that people can access. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You can. The field nat groups are a fabulous, mm. uh, incredible resource and, and dedication. So go onto your, the field nat sites and see what they've got uh, in terms of uh, in terms of recommendations and and what vegetation you can restore or ways that you can help um, conserve species. I mean, there's so many different things you can do. You can have you know little um, bee houses and you can have. Um, you know hollows uh, that you put up into artificial hollows that you can put up into into trees um there's nest boxes there's all sorts of things you can do bat boxes there's a wonderful uh and it's so exciting to have these um, amazing animals and plants coming into your mm. backyard you'd be amazed what's flying past your backyard even in inner melbourne uh and if you provide the right kind of tree or the right kind of um habitat for these things then you'll end up with them in your backyard and you get to look at them and it's uh, it's a wonderful feeling yeah it's very special mm. um just to close out this discussion we were just talking off air about what people can do if they wanted to donate and support different groups who are working on the ground mm. and um, there are so many different groups at all different levels and um expertise and mm. yeah i guess as we've discussed there's animal shelters doing one type of work but there's all these other types of work that is just as important yeah. Um, in terms of conservation, what are your thoughts on individuals um, who may want to provide support Absolutely. in other ways? Mm, absolutely. So, look, there are the, the wild the wildlife welfare groups. So, uh, Wildlife Victoria is a is a good group to look up if you. Um, particularly concerned around the wildlife welfare in your area. But in in terms of 
broader conservation issues, groups like Zoos Victoria are doing captive breeding of of, um, threatened species and it's really crucial conservation work and they're looking much more outwardly now to how they can ensure that we're not losing species in the broader environment, not just sort of as a place for people to go look at animals. And Mm. so that's Zoos Victoria is doing amazing work. You can donate there. Groups like WWF, um, World Wildlife Fund um, and the Australian Wildlife Conservancy are really strong on the conservation of particular sets of species and environments, so hugely um, um, uh, high-impact organisations. Bush Heritage Australia is an amazing organisation. Uh, they do wonderful work, uh, brilliant stuff with um, with traditional owner groups uh, all across Australia, bringing you know prosperity to people and nature through the way that they manage their landscapes. And while they don't have a particular bushfire fund they are providing the habitats and the environments for these species to persist in uh, where they may have lost lost of their range in the state and national parks through the bushfires so so all of these groups are um, are doing really powerful work to try and help conserve uh, threatened species and ecosystems across australia so you know get behind them absolutely Thank you so much for that information. I know it'll be very valuable to people in the different ways they might want to contribute and engage on this subject. Mm. Um, Brendan, good luck with it all. And also (laughs) thank you for doing this really important work and obviously your colleagues across all of Australia and um, the Threatened Species Recovery Hub because it seems like this has become so much more important and urgent than it was before and I've got to say when we last spoke I felt like it was very urgent then (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) how how high can we escalate this yeah exactly thanks so much for coming on and chatting with us thanks Amy it's always great to join you I've been speaking with Professor Brendan Wintle he is a professor in conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne and is also director of the threatened species recovery hub and we've just been talking about the status of Australia's threatened species particularly those who've been affected by bushfires over the summer. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, 102.7 FM on your dial. And uh, I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio today uh, two special international guests, Will Shank and Antonio Rava, who are both highly experienced conservators and they work on large-scale artworks and murals around the world. And they are here in Melbourne. Melbourne uh, to do a range of things, one of which is to give a talk at Melbourne University tonight. They were also um, featured through the National Gallery of Victoria and had an event, I believe, on Sunday talking about the Keith Herring mural in Collingwood, which Antonio painstakingly restored uh, with his team and Will here has worked with Antonio for a number of years. To give you an idea of their background, uh, Will Shank headed conservation at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art for over a decade before relocating to Barcelona and his work with preserving public murals has won him the Rome Prize in 2005 and also led to his creation of the American initiative Rescue Public Murals, which is fantastic. And uh, there's much more um, that Will has done in his uh, long career. And Antonio Rava is an Italian conservator specialising in contemporary art. He studied conservation at the Istituto Centrale del Restoro in Rome and has 40 years experience in this field um, and has worked really across the world. Um, I see he uh, 
he was uh, researching at the Department of Conservation at New York University with a Fulbright scholarship. And both uh, men have published widely in journals about conservation, um, which is both an artistic endeavour but also a highly technical one. So I'm very excited uh, to have them with me in the studio. I welcome Will now. Hi there, Will. Hi, Amy. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming in. And Antonio. Hi, Antonio. Hi. It's great to have you both and uh, welcome to Melbourne. Um, Will, you said this is your first trip here in Australia. How are you finding things? This is my very first time in Australia. I've been here for a week now and I'm loving it. I would love to come back. (laughs) You're more than welcome. And Antonio, (laughs) this is certainly not your first trip. And um, I was really interested to watch the documentary, uh, an ABC documentary about your restoration of um, the Keith Herring mural in Collingwood, which was really fascinating to hear your thoughts and approach on that, and um, hopefully we'll get into that in this conversation. Uh, but how how many times have you um, travelled to Australia for work in conservation of art? How how many trips have you made to Australia? Well, maybe four four trips uh, because uh, it took time to organise uh, the work uh, and uh, set all what was needed and uh, so uh, we returned and kept returning until the work was completed uh, something like five years ago. Mm. And I'm aware that um, not only have you published together with colleagues in journals about conservation and have certainly used some of your experiences working on Keith Herring murals around the world um, but you've also been involved in that practical part of conservation and restoration which is the actual restoration of of these murals one that stood out to me was the um, Keith Haring mural in Paris which is just stunning and so colorful and really um, a a unique kind of example of Keith Haring's work Um, maybe for those who are listening who don't know who Keith Haring is or haven't had much exposure to his art before what um, would you will characterize as Keith Haring's uh, mural work and and his style of of street art and and his I guess significant Wow, that's a lot of questions. Um, His murals are certainly his largest statement, and he did about he did over thirty of them worldwide um, during his um, shockingly brief career. He died at age uh, thirty-one, exactly thirty years ago, of complications from AIDS. But he was incredibly prolific, and he. Throughout the 80s, once he uh, became well-known and uh, was a young man in demand, he found himself in all of these different countries and all these different cities where uh, he would frequently be working with the museum staff on uh, putting together exhibitions of his work. And habitually, he would ask for uh, a public wall where he could paint something really big so that the public could enjoy his work without having to walk through a door and pay admission. So it was one of the charming qualities of his character that he wanted to um, give back to the world. And it was it was consistent with his whole, um, his whole approach to a populist um, interest in art. And that's why he, why he created Pop Shop so that everybody could could own a Keith Haring if it was a keychain or a or a, or a mouse pad or whatever. There was actually an original work of art because he really believed in art for the people. So the murals are the largest expression of that um, philosophy. 
Mm, and they are really quite striking. And I was interested to see that uh, one of the murals in Amsterdam was discovered only fairly recently or rediscovered, I would say, because we all knew that or most people knew that it had happened, at least the artists or art appreciators of Amsterdam. But it was kind of um, hidden for a long time. What was your, um, I guess, experience or perhaps excitement, I guess, uh, around that mural? Yeah, both the Paris uh, mural, which is another story, and the mm. Amsterdam are, are pretty interesting. Um, when Keith was in uh, Amsterdam in 1980, uh, what's the date on that? Six, I think. Mm. Um, he was uh, doing a show at the Stedelijk Museum, the modern museum in Amsterdam, and there too he asked for a wall. So they found him a brick-and-mortar wall in West Amsterdam, which was the warehouse for the Stedelijk's um, paintings and sculpture and he painted this mural upon it it's a really funky very original mural unlike anything else in his work it's one continuous white line of a a sort of hybrid um, dog and mermaid character with a person riding on its back really interesting um, iconography in any case he painted it um, and then change being sort of a part of life in the city uh, the building was sold Uh, The Stedelijk no longer used it, and it had another purpose, and it became uh, a warehouse for um, wholesale food and and also a giant refrigerator. So um, when that happened, the owners of the building decided to cover the exterior with metal panels as part of the insulation. It wasn't about covering up the mural. I don't think they were even aware of the mural. Um, So 30 years went by, and um, a grassroots effort started saying, give us back our Keith Haring mural because a lot of people remember the history and they knew it was there, but you couldn't see it. So um, in June of 2018, we um, it, it took a lot to get to that point with the support of the Keith Haring Foundation and many others, including the grassroots people in, in Amsterdam. And we got the panels removed and Antonio and I went up on a cherry picker and uh, did a condition report just to see what condition it was in. So yeah. although it was hidden, it wasn't unknown and now it's back and we're going in a April to actually do the conservation work from a scaffolding. Oh, wow. That's so exciting. And clearly there is a, a long lead up time of preparation and um, examining the actual mural as it is. Um, I was particularly struck by the fact that that uh, Amsterdam mural, the brick wall wasn't really rendered or it didn't really have a, a kind of smooth surface to paint on um does that create a different challenge when you're looking at restoring a mural like that yeah every mural is different and uh, we understood soon that uh, there is no rule about uh, choosing the support the materials the kind of expression because uh, he was feeling very free about uh, what he wanted to express and every time it was uh, another story and uh, getting back to his uh, original uh, intent as a, a street artist, he was uh, doing a lot of work in the subway of New York in the early 80s. And uh, at the time, it was illegal. So he has been 
few times uh, quote also from the police uh, for that work. But that was a very useful work for him because he reported later uh, if his imagination could go so far around in all these uh, ephemeral works he did uh, in the subway of New York. And uh, uh, that remained uh, as a a, a strong, uh, um, powerful uh, expression that came up uh, every time uh, in a different way. Uh, he never did uh, a drawing before. He just uh, had everything in his mind, as he kept saying. And he started from one corner, finishing on the other corner of the, of the, the huge surface, three, 300 square meters maybe, and everything was perfect. Mm-hmm. No correction, no difficulties in, in what he was uh, doing. And it was like a performance. People looking at him and even the movie recordings we have show him like a dancer moving on the surface of these huge walls with a very specific uh, um, knowledge and consciousness. And, and always make music him playing. A great oh, yeah, his boombox. Yeah, yeah, make him a great artist. Mm. So beside everything else he did in his life, uh, we can say he was a real great artist for the capacity he had, which was not usual. Yes, and I think a lot of people, and my first um, my view of Keith Haring when I saw his work and I watched a documentary of his um, his drawings in the subway, uh, was that he had that kind of spontaneity but also this energy that kind of popped out from his drawings. And although he's using really bold and simple lines, they have this kind of extra quality and energy that just really captures your attention and has, I guess, an aura a feeling that it gives the viewer when you're looking at the artist's hand and the that energy that you're looking at in these murals how do you contend with that as a a conservator and in in a restoration piece oh that's the really great thing about being a conservator because whether you're looking through a microscope at the brushwork of a picasso or a matisse or a george o'keefe um or whether you're up on the scaffolding looking really closely at how that wet paint went on the wall and dried you really get a feeling for the hand of the artist, which is the great joy. You really feel close Mm -hmm. to the artist. So um, it's really important for us to um, respect Keith Haring's line, which he spoke a great deal about in his journals. He said, a lot of people imitate me, um, but what's important about my work is the line. And so we get to actually see that, that lovely swoop and where he lifted his paintbrush off the wall and then put it back down and how completely sure-handed he was and totally spontaneous just a continuous line um no errors and as antonio said no no preparatory sketches he just Mm. went for it Mm. so yes our job is to retain all of that energy yeah it's pretty amazing and um it was interesting to see that he drew a number of chalk drawings uh in the 1980s and that being such a short-lived form um, but obviously he needed to do things really quickly when he's in the subway and doing something that is not allowed. Um, is that one reason why you think he might have developed this confidence and ability to do things quickly sure. and with vision? Sure. He, he is a street artist and he always uh, uh, stated that uh, so quickness and uh, eventually uh, not uh, protect work uh, 
was his uh, his way of doing uh, and uh, using cherry picker or something which uh, was bent and uh, coming down from the top of the roof. I mean, he was using different tools uh, to reach the surface and uh, um, the energy was uh, conveyed by the music. He always had a radio with the music, mm. which made him in the mood of uh, creating, entering in a very special space uh, of expression, which uh, he really wanted uh, and conveyed also to others uh, because sometimes, like in Pisa, he called people from the street to help him doing (laughs) and it turned to be a party, uh, being all together and doing uh, all one public work which is publicly uh, made with the hands of different people. Mm. And that... um, in that kind of conversation and back and forth collaboration, I guess, between the public and Keith Herring, I guess, must be part of the reason why people feel so invested in his work and have an emotional um, attachment to it and an instinctive attachment, I guess. And they also, if it's part of the streetscape that they live in, must develop a bond with some of his work if they're going past it every day and I know a lot of people who might go past the mural in Collingwood would also have that feeling of it being a part of their life in in some way in the background um how have you experienced his work um as a conservator because if you are dealing with an artwork that is so publicly loved and has such an interesting relationship with the community that the mural is in how do you manage that that relationship and how do you come in and understand the expectations that a community might have of of what a restoration of a Keith Haring mural might look like? Yeah, I think uh, in Melbourne it was pretty visible that uh, that thing because uh, a lot of controversies uh, had arisen before we actually did the restoration. And so we had to deal with different opinions and we had to show that our conservation work was uh, the good one, not prevailing over the artist's intent and giving the good result for the future maintenance of the expression of the artist. We already had the experience of so many repainted murals that are considered lost. Uh, the fact of uh, uh, repainting uh, really uh, take away all the intent, uh, artistic intent of the artist, and uh, the, the 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 work becomes a copy of itself. Mm. But uh, from the conservative. Uh, way it's also something which distracts uh, the material because if you stratify one layer over the other and the superimposed layer become thicker then uh, the change in the uh, glass temperature uh, transition uh, make uh, delamination of uh, this uh, thick line uh, thick surface of uh, of varnish and delamination means the need of reapplying and uh, the next time it would be worse so in in quite a, quite a, a short time the material is uh, completely ruined and not visible anymore yeah if i may just add to that your question about the community uh, passing by it every day it was it was so important um t- uh, when decisions were made about the Collingwood mural because there was this uh, controversy when uh, when it just wasn't visible and people were angry and um, and uh, didn't know what to do about it and they wanted it back and there were various campaigns saying save the Keith Herring mural but there were also a variety of opinions about how to do that so 
one school of thought, and it's the one we come from as people who work in museums with precious objects, is return to the original, save every flake of Keith Haring's paint. And it's the sort of thing that was done, for instance, to The Last Supper of, of Leonardo, where a woman working through a microscope for years took off everything that didn't wasn't applied by Leonardo, and what's left is a ghost, um, really very pale, um, vague image that, that, although it's original, it has no life. So that was one approach to the herring mural, but it was finally um, rejected by sensitive conservators who realized that this is not going to meet the needs of the community. This has to be a vibrant, beautiful thing mm. that people are going to point to and say, that's Keith Herring, and that was this really cool thing that happened in 1984, and people were dancing, and there's still people dancing on the walls. So Antonio had the difficult charge of not painting over it, but somehow reviving those colors that had disappeared. And that's the magic of what we do. (laughs) (laughs) And I had noticed that the colors of that mural, you've got the yellow background, which had kind of become very faded um, and discolored. And then the red seemed to be particularly volatile. And I mean, it's in past examples, I know that red can be a very volatile color anyway. How did you deal with that of restoring, as you've said, the, that kind of vibrancy and sense of movement in a, a painting that has that um, imagery of dancing and movement? Yeah. The, the murals uh, uh, by Kitterin often, like, usually has a meaning, a, a sign which is uh, conveyed to the people. And this is astonishing, uh, interesting, because 1984 was the, the moment when the first uh, uh, Microsoft uh, computer came on, on sale. And so it is about uh, the computer and the young people. And uh, it is uh, positive and negative at the same time. But it was a strong m- message which uh, had to be saved and uh, the Herring Foundation at the time said, if you don't see the message anymore, the mural is not useful for us anymore. It's going to be lost because we don't want some wreck remaining without uh, the possibility of reading what the artist intended. And they often stressed the difference between a painting inside and a mural outside. The painting remains uh, the same for decades and centuries and has a a very still life while the outdoor continuously change because Mm. uh, the climate, because uh, uh, the the environment is an effect. The people, the sensitive surface can be changed, but every scrap, uh, scratch you you do on the surface. So it was necessary to return to the original. And in that case, cleaning was so important, and we found the possibility with uh, just erasers, rubber erasers, remove the whitish uh, part of the paint, which... uh, Uh, came up on the surface. That was a big controversy because uh, it's part of the original. So it's like the painting, the the material paint uh, was divided in two and the white part was coming on the surface. And you had to take it out for the sake of uh, the yellow recover underneath. And the yellow was the big part of the surface and it was so important to have it back because the colors between them are synalytic. They give the strength. Without the color, everything is lost. Mm. And so we we had an Italian theoretical idea, which is primum vivere. I mean, save what it is necessary for the sake of the paint. So even if 
it's a part of the original which is coming through, and that happened a lot with stone conservation, where the black uh, carbon crusts uh, developing on the surface were uh, still having part of the original uh, calcium carbonate from the stone. But we had to take it out because of this, uh, the, the possibility of making uh, the worker fat survive. So in this case, was really surviving for the, the work of art. And we did, and we explained. We had a lot of talk with the restorers in the city, and not everybody was the same idea, but uh, they accepted our concept, which comes directly from the Italian attitude in conservation, which is, I mean, old and seasoned in uh, strategies. Yes, uh, well, I know that there is a long history of, of that theory and that many uh, students, even at Melbourne University, would be learning theories from Italian conservators. Um, and I've read uh, some of the blog posts about um, this particular uh, conservation and restoration of the mural and um, some of the theorists. I, th- I believe there was one particular theorist that you were drawing from in, in this approach. Can you remind me who that was? Uh, Cesare Brandi, uh, yes. who is uh, the founder of uh, the theory of, of conservation. Mm. It, it may be changed for contemporary art, which is sometimes uh, so different from uh, the scale of uh, uh, old masters' approach. But still, I mean, it is like a safety net which helps you in the draw, in the designing your work as uh, some support, a theoretical support, give a very strength uh, understanding, and you can explain because people often want uh, explanation. Mm. Why you did that? And I say I did because uh, the theory brings me to the point of doing it, and uh, and that's a. Uh, um, not controversial. It's much more <laughs> quite than say I do because I feel like it, it is the good thing to do. It's very different. Yes, it's not just your opinion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, given this particular mural, I mean, it was quite a large scale and uh, it was also, I believe, one of the first, if not the first murals Keith Herring used a, a cherry picker for, one of those kind of machines that um, lifted him up to, to high scales. Apparently so. <laughs> I mean, it's probably hard to actually track and be absolutely certain, but um, given uh, this mural is probably, I guess, more in his early stages of his career or earlier stages. 84, yeah, it's early. I think this was yeah. actually his first large outdoor mural. And the, the story goes that he discovered the cherry picker um, there in Collingwood and he loved it. And then he also used it on the water wall at the NGV. Yes, and uh, that's another a great example of the work that he did here. I believe that this um, Collingwood mural was the only permanent um, mural that we have in Australia from his trip. That's right. He he definitely called this one permanent. So mm. we yeah felt a great um, moral obligation to make sure it's permanent. Yeah, and so uh, I mean it's sometimes difficult. Um, with an artist, especially Keith Haring, who uh, died so young, he's not around to give specific instructions, but he certainly did, as you say, indicate his attitude towards this mural and also his other artworks. How did you incorporate his uh, wishes and views into the project and the planning? He he did um, speak, he, he did die tragically young, but he did speak, he go, went on record about permanence and um, there's actually a video of him working in Pisa in front of the the first uh, mural that we restored together, uh, Tutto Mondo, which was his last mural in his life. And he says, um, 
clearly I expect this to last for hundreds of years, which was optimistic because acrylic paints have only been around since the 1940s, and we don't know that it's even possible to make them last hundreds of years, but we're doing our best. So, Yeah, yeah. and this particular mural in Collingwood, I believe the paints were um, commercial or hardware store type paints, so um, they, they varied, I guess, in their robustness. Um, how did you, I guess, restore this mural and how did you analyse the types of paints that uh, Keith Herring had used? Yeah, fortunately we had always uh, the same approach uh, with the scientific uh, team uh, ruled by Perla Colombini, who is a bright uh, scientist in Italy, in Pisa, and uh, uh, having the possibility to compare all the studies we are doing on the herring from the same laboratory. So it's a very uh, complete scene of knowledge about uh, uh, the materials. And here we had the worst material, which is alkidic uh, animal, uh, alkidic resin, which doesn't last uh, in the outdoor because uh, it's a modified polyester with oil mm. and uh, uh, it's like painting in oil on the outdoor. It becomes soon brittle and it cracks and it loses uh, little particles until it completely disappears. So the red line, which is so important for, for the mural, was made with this alkyd uh, paint and uh, had to be revitalized, which was the most uh, uh, delicate part of the work. And uh, uh, we chose the, the glaze as a, a technique, which is adding something very transparent, red, uh, to uh, what is rest still there of the original uh, line. So not uh, intending, interpreting anything, leaving the re remarks uh, he did uh, while he was going on with the line with his brush, uh, which are still visible, but uh, adding color, adding the, the red uh, uh, vibrant uh, uh, tune, which uh, counteracts uh, the other colors and give the real answer for for the readability of the um, of the work and uh, uh, i did myself with uh, the same uh, gl glossy and uh, uh, tine uh, quality and uh, the same brush going through all the line of uh, of the mural and uh, i can say it's not repainted. Uh, many people mm -hmm. came and see what a beautiful work you do. You repainted the mural. And I say, no, it's not being repainted. It is restored because glazing is something which has always been into conservation. And it's uh, an important part of uh, rejuvenating what is still there but has a need of being more visible. And uh, that was done here. It was rather difficult and controversial, but at the mm -hmm. end, everybody was pleased because we found the solution for the visibility. Yeah, I've got to say personally, I really appreciated the fact that you, it has this vibrancy with the red pigment back and it's and that you've really maintained the, the colour of the yellow background. It seems like also that the green was possibly um, less of an issue, was it, in terms yeah, of... Yeah, it was much easier because... Uh, as being acrylic uh, had a, a good quality uh, surface. Mm -hmm. Acrylics uh, have the problem of thinning on the outdoor because half of the material goes away as water diluted, uh, water removed uh, from the rain. 
and uh, it gets much thinner, much more brittle and uh, uh, permeable. So even dust can enter, but still the quality of the, 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 the surface, the, 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 the pictorial layer re- re- remaining there is still in, in a good shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, everywhere where we find acrylics, uh, we are released because they are better than the rest of the material. But we found many different materials in, <laughs> in, uh, in all the, the works. Yeah. And so with this particular mural, um, I know that it does require um, upkeep and you need to um, revisit sometimes to see how the weather is, um, is faring. And obviously with climate change um, and heat in Australia, that potentially is another element that can disrupt paint. Um, what, what's your experience been when you're looking at um, and returning to murals that you've been working on? Um, certainly there's a, there's a response to the environment. And this is a, a, the Collingwood mural is on an east-facing east wall, so it, it gets the morning sun. It really bakes in the sun in the morning. And um, so this is not um, this is not an artwork that's going to maintain itself. It will have to be regularly checked, and we're we're thinking of ways to protect it from ultraviolet radiation and uh, and other passive intervention to make sure it lasts longer. The Paris mural, which we haven't really talked about, mm. is um, twenty seven meters tall. It's on a tower in the middle of a children's hospital in uh, Montparnasse in the fifteenth arrondissement, and um, the black lines that he used uh, were. Uh, um, it was like a PVA. It was kind of vinyl, vinyl paint applied very thickly, and it was extremely thermoplastic, which means that when it baked in the hot sun of the Paris summer, it actually peeled and curled up in crunchy, crunchy little um, curvy bits. And we had to push that back down, although a lot of it had fallen off. So wow. um, t- time will tell how people always ask us how long this will last. And um, we can't fall into that trap because we certainly do our best with the materials that are available to us now. And uh, and then maintenance is required in the future. Mm. Well, that mural, I hope people can look it up um, because it's pretty amazing, as all of them all of them are. But it, it is really beautiful. Um, in terms of the mural that you're going to be uh, restoring in Amsterdam. Clearly, this is a, a long process and it's an ongoing process, as you've indicated. What kind of preparation or what level of preparation is required for a large scale Keith Herring mural um, in terms of the time that's undertaken uh, before you actually do the practical elements of getting up on the scaffolding and, and working with the actual mural itself? Yeah, we had the, the possibility of studying the material first, uh, which is always uh, the first step. And it's very important because uh, we cannot uh, set a conservation procedure without uh, knowing which materials are and how they are stratified and how they fade in the outdoor. So we found more preoccupying than we thought because being the paint under a corrugated iron for 30 years, maybe we hoped it was protected. Mm. But still we find this paint, which is again an enamel, again an alkidic white enamel, um, peeling off from the surface. So it's not attacked. Uh, it can fall down very easily. And so uh, the idea is uh, to do as soon as possible a good conservation treatment which uh, adheres uh, the surface back. 
And we found a photograph which is very interesting where it's visible that water was uh, coming in that day. Um, even if it rained, uh, he painted uh, all, the, all the same, the artist. And uh, you see in the photographs all these sparkling lights of the water on the surface of the huge wall. And uh, with the graphic, we could test that is exactly the places where uh, the paint is not well adhered. Because mm -hmm. the enamel went on the wet surface and it couldn't uh, stick over the, the, the bricks underneath. So it really is there, but uh, not long. So we have to, to do a quick work uh, mm. in uh, you know, organizing and, uh, and treating. Uh, they asked us uh, to go in winter, but we said no, not for <laughs> our sake, no, no, but no. for the, <laughs> the, the sake of the materials. We have to respect the uh, chemistry of the material. It's impossible to work when it's chilly, goes under zero, and materials doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. So we said, let's wait for spring. Wait till spring. So we go in April. But to answer your initial question, I think this will be our fifth trip to Amsterdam. There was a lot of planning required and getting all the stakeholders to sign on and, of course, getting yeah. the funding. And, mm. Yeah, and then studying the materials, which was absolutely essential. Yeah, and I'm just thinking if um, there's elements that have peeled and since flown away or, or fallen um, from that resin uh, material, what would one do in that situation where there are gaps of white, where the white paint was? Oh, that's what we're going to do. We we, we put back uh, what's still there, and yeah. then we retouch in a very traditional way the places where the paint is missing. Yeah, it's actually compared to some of the other really complex projects. The Amsterdam mural is pretty straightforward. Mm. And does it make it more straightforward being in one color and one material? It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's only one set of parameters to consider. What, the, the what I can add uh, is not very nice uh, to have a, a carbon polluted the surface of the bricks underneath mm. and we cannot do anything about it because uh, he chose the, the surface because it was black and he painted white over the black uh, because of the contrast so now cleaning the bricks will change completely the mm. effect and so it's impossible we have to keep the polluted air surface <laughs> <laughs> That is really fascinating. Um, it does remind me of those very old murals where they were in churches and you saw um, with all the candles that had been burned, the resin or the res residue of candles on these murals and um, the difficulty of taking that off um, and potentially disrupting things like tempura, which I know are a bit difficult to deal with. Have you ever had any involvement with some of those um, more difficult old school uh, materials? Yeah, I worked on uh, mural paintings all my life. Uh, yeah. So there was a uh, very different uh, approaches, and especially poultices and gels stratified on the surface now can remove without adding too much water, which is always uh, the risky point. And uh, uh, being very sensitively on the surface but not pouring water can extract uh, what is uh, not original and not intended and regain uh, the quality underneath. Conservators take all sorts of things off of paintings. It's usually um, aged varnish, but I've taken mm. off chewing gum. I've taken <laughs> off chocolate icing. I've, a lot of nicotine, a lot of uh, nicotine from smokers' homes. And, uh, yeah. It's fascinating, <laughs> the types of histories behind these paintings and how they've kind of lived in the space that they're in, because it is all about, you know, life. 
and humans as well as, as much as it is the artwork itself. Right. Yeah. Um, I hope that people can head along to your talk if they want to learn more about not just this mural but your other work um, in wall paintings and murals and street art and to get a, an understanding of the um, conservation techniques that you employ and the analysis that you do as well. Um, it is tonight at the Elizabeth Murdoch Theatre, uh, which is in the Elizabeth Murdoch Building um, at the University of Melbourne. And for those who are um, not familiar with that, it's just off Swanston Street on the Parkville campus and it starts tonight um, doors opening at 5.30 for a 5.45 start uh, finishing at 7.15 and uh, it's presented by um, Melbourne University but also a number of other um, art institutions in in Melbourne Preservation Um, groups, yes, Gamos and AIC Exactly Uh, Thank you both so much May I say one more thing? I just wanted to um, gratefully acknowledge the uh, support of, of um, Heritage Victoria for maintaining the uh, the mural for all of this time and making this happen. And also, there was a generous grant um, called a Living Heritage Grant that uh, was given to the Collingwood um, Arts Precinct, um, and that made it possible for us to be here. So, thank you, and greetings to my family in Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, it is a great um, point to make. I've been speaking with two wonderful uh, conservators, international art conservators, Will Shank and Antonio Rava, and they are both in Melbourne right now for their uh, many talks, but also to revisit the Keith Herring mural in Collingwood. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.